to another episode of Trans Regrets Newbie Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today, uh, someone whose work I greatly admire, and I'm very excited to talk about a passage from 2 Timothy with him. Uh, this is Thomas J. Ord. Hi, Tom. Hey, good to be hanging out with you today. Thanks so much for coming on. I um, I was already gushing to you about uh, how much I admire your work, and um, you were kind enough to get me a copy of the book you'll be releasing next month. And it is really great. And it's going to be so useful thanks. for so many people. So um, thanks again for for joining me. Yeah, thank you for the invitation and for reading a, an advanced copy of the book. <laughs> well, um, before we get into the passage that we were going to discuss, uh, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself and how faith plays a part in your life? Okay, you mind if I go deep fast and go right to what matters to me most. Absolutely. Totally fine. Yeah. Okay. More than anything else in my life, I want to be a person who loves, who lives a life of love. Love is my orienting concern. And it's the reason why I am a follower of Jesus. Um, I grew up in a conservative evangelical background. I was one of these annoying people in, uh, especially in college who, did door-to-door witnessing, witnessed the people on airplanes and bars. I joined Campus Crusade for Christ. I was a witnessing machine. And then I uh, took a course in my last year of college in philosophy of religion. And in that course, uh, the reasons I had for thinking there was a God no longer seemed plausible to me. And I remember coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, turning to her and saying, I can't believe in God anymore. Um, I was an atheist or agnostic for a while, but unlike some people who are atheists, I wasn't like mad at the church. I could see all kinds of problems in the church, but I wasn't mad at the church. I wasn't uh, hurt or abused by you know people in authority, at least not to the extent many people are. For me, my turn to atheism was on intellectual grounds. I just didn't think I had the same kind of reasons to believe there was a God. I eventually came back to belief in God, and two things initially were at the heart of my return to thinking it was plausible there's a God. I don't know for sure there is, but I live my life believing there's good reasons to think there's a God. And one of those reasons was my search for meaning. I couldn't make sense of how life could have any ultimate meaning if there wasn't something like an ultimate ground of meaning that a lot of people call God. And the other thing was I had these deep intuitions that I ought to be a loving person, that other people ought to love, that somehow love was the answer. And I couldn't make sense of that being an ultimate intuition if there wasn't something that corresponded to that, that most people call God. And based on those two ideas, I started to piece my views of God and life and Jesus and et cetera together. And I'm still in the process of doing that. (laughs) But uh, for a long time, I had a very 
we'll call it uh, thin theology. You know, I believe there was a loving God. I thought Jesus is pretty cool. And that was about it. <laughs> In fact, I lost a job. I went to get a, a job interview to be an associate pastor. And the, the senior pastor asked me about my Christology. And I told him what I believed. And he was like, eh, I think you need to know more than that. <laughs> so, um, so over time, I have pieced things together. And the result is what you mentioned earlier, uh, a, a view that's called an open and relational God. The love is still central, but uh, some of the other traditional views of God that many people hold, I don't find plausible. And I suspect we're going to get to some of that in this conversation today. I hope so. The, um, the idea of open and relational theology is something I've kind of talked a little bit about on the show because it has resonated with me personally as someone who has gone through long periods of doubt in my life and in my trying to figure out a version of faith and of Christianity that still makes sense to me in the way mm-hmm. that uh, it has to in a world that is kind of constantly attacking any and all attempts to form a coherent uh, belief structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that the world that we're in now uh, lends itself to faith in much other than um, what the sort of dominant culture insists upon, mm. uh, or at least it doesn't reward that kind of faith. Yeah. Um, and, and so to hear certain, um, certain topics or certain struggles that people have uh, framed in a way that still allows for a loving and caring God is so important. And I really hope that uh, folks will check out um, the book and, and really just go Google Thomas J. Ord, uh, look on YouTube, um, you can look up podcasts that that you've been on. Uh, you have presented um, and refined a really, really cool um, theology that I think folks, um, more and more folks in in today's world, will resonate with. Mm-hmm. And um, thank you. It's uh, it's it's a hard one to 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 understand at first, which is I think why mm-hmm. your book seems to be addressing it in a more plain spoken way. Would you say that you sort of wrote this with the intent of having everyone be able to understand it? Yeah, I wrote a book in 2015 called The Uncontrolling Love of God. And it was looking at providence and presenting an open relational view that that gave the kind of theoretical, kind of more sophisticated, it was published by an academic press. So, you know, um, a lot of people liked the book, it won awards, but people came to me and said, you need to write books that I can give to my mother to read. <laughs> and so I wrote a book that came out in 2019 called God Can't. And that book uh, takes the questions of evil and rethinks God's power in a way that says that God simply doesn't have the ability to single-handedly prevent evil. And that message has just been such good news for so many victims survivors, people in the margins who aren't a part of the status quo, and theology nerds who've been wrestling with the the problem (laughs) of evil for a long time. And so, um, I mean, that book literally has been a bestseller in a lot of different forms and formats. But um, it presupposes this kind of broader vision of open relational theology that I don't really explain very much in that book. And so this new book that you've mentioned coming out simply called open relational theology 
is another book aimed at, you can give to your mother, <laughs> uh, but uh, gives a broader view of what the theological moves are uh, that are at the core of open relational thought. I think um, the the idea of open and relational we should touch on a little bit so people understand, or at Great. least the framework of of what it means um, to be open for this theology of an open God is a God that does not necessarily know what goes on beyond what's happening at the present, that God is experiencing time in the same way that we experience time. Is that about right? That's right. Yeah. And so what's open is the future. The future is open yet to be determined. And therefore God can't know with absolute certainty, everything that's going to happen in the future because the future isn't yet knowable by anyone. It's not, doesn't yet exist. We might say. So someone who might immediately have their ears perk up and go, but wait a second, uh, Jesus said, I am the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. How can that be possible if God doesn't know um, what the future may hold? That doesn't mean that God doesn't exist in the future, uh, right? Uh, open and relational theology allows for an eternal God. That's right. Yeah. The word that most will use is everlasting, but I, I assume what you mean by eternal is probably the same as everla everlasting. That is, mm -hmm. whenever there is a time, God is in it, present and active. There is no time in the future because the future isn't the present. <laughs> but once <laughs> the present becomes the future, then God is there also. And God is everlastingly existing. Mm -hmm. And so to, um, to say that God is also relational is something that we see played out in the Bible all over the place, which is the conversation of uh, human experience and human emotion um, as it relates to God and um, God relating to human beings in a similar way. Um, just like uh, human feeling uh, impacts other human beings, human feeling, human prayer, human experience impacts God as well. Right. Six years ago, I was laid off from being a theologian at an institution. And um, one of the reasons was that I was an open relational thinker. And when people hear that, they think, oh, man, open relational thought. It must be super controversial, whatever. And, and I start by saying, well, one of the things it says is that God is in relation with us, such that what we do has a real effect on God. Our prayers influence God. Our actions influence God. And they're, they look at me and they think, okay, now what's the controversy there? Because that, like, <laughs> that's the God of the Bible, isn't it? Exactly. And then, <laughs> and then I tell them, well, the vast majority of major Christian theologians from Augustine to Aquinas to John Calvin to Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards and all of them didn't think we had a real effect on God. They rejected a plain reading of scripture when it talks about God being happy when we do well and angry when we do poorly, etc. Um, and so open and relational thinking goes back to a more, I think, a much more biblically oriented view of an interactive God who not only gives to us, but also receives from us. Absolutely. It's, it's very scripturally sound in that we see it, we see it in uh, the way that Moses pleads with God. We see it in the way that Jesus, who was fully man and fully God, uh, kind of is trying to intercede for himself, uh, his human body, 
uh, when he prays in Gethsemane. I mean, uh, so God is listening to us. And that's kind of the core of the relational aspect of this theology is that um, while it does in some way take away uh, a certain sense of the comfort that we get of an all-powerful God who can kind of swaddle us in his arms and and hold us and take care of everything. And he knows exactly what's going to happen at all times. Um, anyone that's lived any amount of life in this world knows the scope of terrible things that happen to us over the course of our lives. No one really escapes pain and suffering in some mm-hmm. way or another. And so uh, we have to accept that uh, either... That is God punishing us for something in a very cruel way, <laughs> or right. perhaps this isn't God acting in this way. Yeah. Now, what makes my view so controversial to some people is that when I say, well, maybe God's not punishing us or hasn't abandoned us, I also say God is not allowing these bad things to happen. So some people will say, well, God doesn't cause evil in our lives. But God allows other people to abuse us or allows the evil one to, you know, mess with our heads or whatever. And in my way of thinking, that still doesn't present a picture of a loving God, because if God could prevent it, then a loving God would do so. Um, I mean, imagine how this plays out in like our everyday lives. I happen to have three daughters. I live in Idaho. And behind my house, there's a good sized stream. And during the summers, uh, my kids used, my three daughters used to play in the stream behind our house. Suppose one day I'm out in my backyard and I look up and my girls are in the stream and my oldest daughter has taken my youngest daughter's head and put it under the water because she's mad at her and she's drowning her. Now, suppose I'm close enough, I could wade out into the stream and prevent this death. But suppose I say, you know, I think I'm just going to allow this to happen. I'm going to permit my oldest daughter to kill my youngest daughter. Um, I mean, I'm not causing this death. I'm not doing it myself, but I'll just allow her free will. Well, nobody in my subdivision would vote me father of the year if I did that, because right? they all think that if you could prevent that, you ought to. And yet most people I know think God has the kind of power to prevent the crap that goes on in our personal lives and in the world, and yet permits it, allows it. And I just don't think that's a good way to think about divine love, let alone our love. There are um, prominent uh, Christian speakers, uh, writers, even today, that kind of have this view. I was watching a sermon that uh, Piper did not too long ago, John Piper did not too long ago, and he was talking about how these physical deformities that people have are actually evil acting in the world. And I just got sick to my stomach when I heard it. Uh, Like, what an awful thing to say. Uh, Yes, evil does exist. Do I think that necessarily that that people's physical deformities are a punishment for some sort of sin that they've done or a sins, even worse, sins of their family? Because there are instances in the Bible where they say, I'm going to curse you and I'm going to curse your entire family. Um, it's it's not the God of love that we're told over and over and over again exists. This is God, God is love. And we hear it yeah. again and again. I got to throw some Bible at us here. Um, <laughs> many, you and many of your listeners will know the story in which Jesus comes upon, a, I think it's a, a child who's lame. And uh, someone asks him, why is this child have this problem? 
Was it his sin or was it his parents? And Jesus answers, uh, this was this occurred, and then in the Greek, there's no um, so that or because of, but then it says, God glorified. And most translators of scripture translate that, this thing has happened to this kid, so that or because of God's wanting to be glorified. The Greek doesn't have that. Mm. Now, that is so common for people in like Piper or even more, we'll call them Wesleyan Arminians, will give this kind of account of these things so that there's some kind of purpose in them because God either did it directly or allowed it to be done. And I just think that way of thinking doesn't work. And I'm actually think the majority of scripture supports my view. In fact, I like to say this, I mean, I'll put it on air. (laughs) (laughs) I have yet to find a single passage in the entire Bible that explicitly says God alone brought about some result or outcome and there was no creaturely input. Most of the stories explicitly talk about creaturely input Some of them don't and only talk about God, but I know of none. And when I say none, I mean the creation of the universe, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the resurrection of Jesus, the eschatological fulfillment. None of them explicitly say it was only God who acted. Now, some of them only mention God, but none of them rule out creaturely contribution or lack thereof. Hmm. I say that just to say this view that I'm proposing may sound outlandish to people at first, but once you have it in your head as a possibility, you start seeing things in Scripture you never noticed before. That's so interesting. I was going to ask you about the creation uh, because uh, we've done a little bit of Exodus in, on, on the show, and um, obviously I encourage everyone that listens to be reading the Bible constantly all the time, and so no, don't just follow along with the, the podcast, please. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, where, does, um, where does open and relational theology fit into the creation story? How does, how does a, cr- a creature influence its own creation? Yeah. In the, I think of open and relational thought as a broad umbrella under which there's lots of different views. So the view that I'm about ready to tell you is mine. It doesn't necessarily reflect everyone else under that umbrella. But my own view is that the Genesis 1 passage in particular, but every other passage in Scripture, doesn't explicitly say that God alone brought the universe into existence out of absolute nothingness. Even some very conservative evangelical biblical scholars say creation out of nothing is just not in the Bible. The closest you get is a second Maccabees passage, which is not even in the Protestant canon. And if you read that passage, you find that there's actually something there. It's not nothing. But over and over again in scriptures, it talks about God creating out of water, says Second Peter, or uh, out of chaos in the first part of Genesis or out of something or out of people or unseen things in Hebrews, etc. Um, but I think specifically to your question, once we have this creation going, it says God in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. There's the deep already at the beginning when God's creating. And then almost immediately, God is saying to creation, bring forth and the creation is bringing forth things. And then God is saying, that's good. Says to some other part of creation, bring forth. So there's even in Genesis 1, lots of cooperative co-creating 
between the creatures and the creative. Some explicit, others I suggest is implicit. So that's interesting. I remember um, hearing you mention in a lecture that you were giving that um, the creation of our world as it is canonized in the Bible and how we understand it today was one of God's creations, not all of God's creation. That um, it, I've always thought it was a funny, like so human and so selfish to think that our world, our universe is the only one that God's ever created. Um, and I've, I've kind of talked about this on the show before that to me, it's very feasible. It, it's almost impossible not not to think that there are other worlds that God's created, that there are other universes that God has created. And uh, this is even more influencing or um, or uh, kind of driving home the point that God is so powerful that he didn't just create one universe. He's created all of these universes. Yeah. Um, we, I've been talking a lot about John um, in, uh, in the show lately. And we learn, you know, Exodus has in the beginning – was God, right? But John kind of opens this idea that actually it was God and Jesus was there too, that there was someone else there. And so that again opens this kind of possibility for there to have been other things going on when the world was created. Yeah, right. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible explicitly advances my own view, which says that before this universe was created, God was creating a previous universe. But I am saying that the Bible does not explicitly affirm the classic Christian view, and by classic, I mean since about the third or fourth century, that God created the world out of absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting that that idea, again, it's not in the Bible, and many early Christian thinkers thought God created out of something, but the idea that God created out of nothing actually arose from two Gnostic thinkers. Gnosticism is a view that says that matter is inherently evil, and so these Gnostic thinkers thought, well, a good God wouldn't want to mess around with inherently evil matter or stuff when creating. So God must have created out of nothing. And then some Christians, especially um, Tertullian, pick it up and they have this strong view of omnipotence. And they see that, look, if we have a God who doesn't need anything to create, that's an even stronger God. And off we go. <laughs> but the problem is that. If God has the kind of power to create something out of nothing, boy, the problem of evil becomes even more difficult to try to solve because this God could create out of nothing a stone wall to stop a bullet or create instantaneously out of nothing a net to scoop up a person about ready to be raped or et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, pro the creation out of nothing view creates huge problems for the problem of evil. Yeah, that's um, and I guess we're kind of going to transition into another um, part of this conversation about opening relational theology is that um, a lot of folks who drift away from faith do so because of uh, either traumatic experiences that have happened in their lives or things they see playing out in the world that a loving God could simply not allow or cause in some cases. Um the answer to that is a complicated one, and it's one that I don't, I don't know that I'm even really qualified to explain. I think you're probably going to do better at this. But if someone has a question like, um, I, you know, I have a, a brother who um, got HIV and, uh, and then, you know, became AIDS and he died and he was praying the whole time and, and begged God to, to cure him and it didn't happen. Why did it happen? 
um, why did God allow this? Did God cause this? Or what reason was there that God didn't step in? In my perspective, God is always active and working, but God can't, simply can't control others. And by others, I not, don't just mean human or animals or birds, insects, amoeba, even corks, cells, genes, etc. God is a God of self-giving, others-empowering love. And moment by moment, God gives freedom to complex creatures like you and me, self-organization to less complex creatures, even very existence to the quarks and the atoms of the universe. And this is something God does by God's very nature. It's who God is to give this, depending on the complexity of the agent or the thing. And because God must do this, and God can't fail to give this to others, God simply can't control anyone or anything. God can't control an HIV virus. God can't control COVID-19. God is working against evil in the world and calling upon you and me and other creatures and cells and to whatever possibilities to reject evil in all its various forms. But God alone can't prevent evil. Now, I know that some people hear that and they say, okay, now you've really left scripture because <laughs> the God of the Bible can do anything. And uh, that's one of the reasons I suggested the verse we want to look at today. But before we do that, let me note that uh, there are quite a few biblical passages that say God can't do things. The writer of Hebrews says God can't tell a lie. James says God can't be tempted. The psalmist says God can't grow tired. Um, and there are others in Scripture. Once again, um, the, the writer of Hosea says God can't leave us. Um, once you start again, start seeing Scripture through this kind of lens, things jump up that you never noticed before, and it turns out that a God who can't do things is actually a God described by biblical writers. That's fascinating. This is like the perfect transition into us talking about the passage, too, because that um, when you suggested this, I thought typically what we what we do on the show is we focus on like a chapter or, um, you know, a few passages together. And you suggested something that was very specific. And for a moment, I was like, I don't know if I can get enough material out of this for an entire episode. <laughs> Obviously, that's not the case. We're about, we're about a half an hour in now. So um, so that's not really the problem. But it also brought another question into my head of, it does say God can't do something. And I didn't have all these examples that you just brought up um, pop up for me. I thought, how many, how many possible situations are there where God can't actually do something? I think some of the ones that you just brought up are saying God can't do something bad, right? It, it, it reinforces yes. that God is good and God is loving and God is present. This one uh, makes, in a way, makes God lose a kind of agency that mm. is super, super um, intriguing. So uh, maybe we should just dive in. Do you think so? Well, let me say one more thing before we dive into it. Um, mm -hmm. It may surprise many of your listeners to discover that even some of the more traditional and conservative theologians in Christian history and in Islam and Judaism have said that God can't do things that are illogical. God can't make a rock so big that even God can't lift it. God can't make an 
a married bachelor. God can't make two plus two equal 397. The only person I know in the history of Western philosophy who rejected that was Rene Descartes. Aquinas thought that. Luther thought that. All these people. So they said God can't do what is illogical. Then in Christian tradition, there's an argument that's gone on for centuries at the academic level between people who are called the voluntarists and people who are called the essentialists. The voluntarists said, God can do whatever God chooses to do that's not breaking the laws of logic. That means God can decide to lie if God wants to. God can stop loving us if God decides to. God can blow up the whole world and reject everything. In fact, and very few actually went this far, God could decide to stop existing. The other side, the essentialist said, no, 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 no. There are things God can't do because God is God. There are certain attributes of God that God couldn't deny because that would mean that God just isn't God. And one of them is God must exist. God necessarily exists. Another one was that God can't change the past. Um, And people had different kind of lists here. Um, And I'm using that in conjunction with the passage we're looking at here. And many of the essentialist folks, and some of those include people like Thomas Aquinas, John Wesley, they pointed to the passage of scripture that we're going to look at today. That's really interesting. The, um, the context of this particular passage is important. We've read a lot of Paul on the show. I, I, initially, I, made the, I think it was the first episode of the show, and this is episode 31 that we're recording right now, the very first episode of the show, I made some comment about how Paul was, uh, was insufferable in a lot of ways because he was so he was so meticulous with everything and he's very rule based that everything was very complicated <laughs> and and of course the more I read him the more I grew to love him but this is sort of widely understood to be Paul's last letter this is um, him writing to his protege who has known him for fifteen years um, and sort of trying to guide him and it's it's a personal letter and he's trying to guide Timothy I think towards the right path to carry forward the faith. Um, In other parts of this letter, uh, he sort of laments that people have been falling away from the church or that um, folks didn't really, they don't understand and they don't get them. It's kind of woe is me at at certain parts, which I found kind of funny. Um, But in this particular passage, uh, he reiterates a point that he kind of brings up in a few different letters, this idea of suffering with Christ so that we become closer to Christ. Um, and then he turns it on its head. So uh, we'll start, we'll just jump in at um, 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, and I'm just going to read through it one time. And then then we'll keep reading because I've got a few different translations that I wanted to touch on. And and all of them present a slightly different, although essentially the same message. And I've, I've said on the show a number of times, if you read three or four different translations of the Bible and in a particular passage, that line remains almost unchanged. That is a passage that you need to memorize. <laughs> That's something that you need to know. Um, because if, if all of these different translators at some point decided, well, I can't do it any better than this one, then... That might be the one that um, that's uh, worth remembering. Anyway, uh, so at verse 11, it says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. 
if we deny him, he also will deny us. Relational. Sorry, sidetrack. Uh, 13. <laughs> <laughs> if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Um, so much of what we're reading here, if, if we think about the last 20 or so minutes that we've been talking about open and relational theology, it's backing this up directly. God is listening. God is present. God is reacting to how we behave, um, how we feel. Um, God knows an awful lot and is changing course actively as we change course. What was your, um, what was your, you have a, a Greek translation. There's something specific that you wanted to bring up that we were talking about a little bit earlier. Well, um, this, yeah, the, the Greek word that's sometimes translated deny, other times disown, is a word arnestite. And it comes in both the end of chapter, verse 12 and is the uh, end of 13. It's the same kind of word. So um, I just wanted to, to note that, that that's a word that uh, Paul is using again and again. And I take it that the logic here is something like there are consequences for our actions and God responds, as you just mentioned. Um, but when it comes to um, God giving up on people, God saying, well, you know, I'm not going to be faithful to you because you're not faithful to me. God simply can't do that. God is unlike us in that way. We can be unfaithful, <laughs> but God can't be. And the reason is, according to this passage, God can't deny or disown him, his, himself, which I and many people think is a way of saying God has a particular nature or essence that is timelessly the same or eternally the same. I like to put it in terms of love. God is always loving, everlastingly. God must love because it's God's very nature. And so when we don't love God, God doesn't you know, respond with, of vengeance, hate, and, and et cetera, God's going to love us anyway. Because, <laughs> you know, I think the popular word that we use is God's love is unconditional. But this is a way of saying God loves by nature because that's who God is and God can't deny himself. The, um, the turn of phrase there in um, the second section of 12, where he says, if we deny him, he will also deny us, kind of uh, says something a little bit opposite to what yes. 13 says, um, because while he's not really denying us, in a way, it's almost like Paul is saying, or the way that I'm reading it is, if we deny him, he will deny us that ability to deny him. Because if we are faithless, he remains faithful and he cannot deny himself. Mm -hmm. And part of what he is, part of what God is, is eternally loving. Yeah, the, I like um, that. The NIV has a little bit of a different framing of this passage. So I wanted to bring this up just uh, because two, two of the other translations I usually um, I usually go to are very, very, very similar, but this one has a different use of that Greek word that you were referring to. Um, it, verse 11, the NIV says, here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So we have the same kind of contradiction, but the use of deny versus disown is a very different, 
it has a very different connotation, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm not quite sure what disown means there. Um, and, and so it's, it's an interesting word in our common parlance. Who do you disown? Um, maybe it's something that happens like in a family. I, I know a person who used to be Amish and left the family. And so they were shunned. Maybe mm. it's something like that. Um, you know, obviously people of LGBTQ orientation and behavior sometimes get disowned by family. Um, I don't know if that's what's going on. I don't know if that's the same kind of connotation. But um, there's something going on there that you're right. Between the two passages, it can be interpreted as saying something opposite. What I tend to do is kind of like what I thought you were just doing there is to say that there's something like there are consequences for what happens to us. And those consequences are natural. I like to talk about natural negative consequences, not a God who punishes by getting pissed off at us and then making us pay. But there are natural negative consequences that come from when we say no to God or disown God. But God, because God's nature is love, according to my view, will never, uh, you know, repay evil with evil, but always repay evil with good. The, um, the, the use of disown to me struck me as a way of kind of softening this loss of agency that God seems to have in this passage. Mm-hmm. Um, God can't disown himself. Obviously, God is God, so he's not going to disown himself. To say that God can't deny himself kind of makes it seem as though God is compelled and not able to control that compulsion to do something, which Mm. um, speaks uh, very differently to me as, you know, a human. We have all these feelings. We have feelings that we probably should deny, that we we have trouble denying. Um, And so in that way, God is kind of cast in the same light as us. To say God can't disown himself, though, is is odd because it's like, yeah, well, yeah, obviously. How is God going to disown himself? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right, right. But I think it's particularly interesting, and I and I should have mentioned, kept this, or I should have included this in the passages that uh, I suggested we read. Is it? Um, well, let me set it up this way. Um, I'm guessing most of your listeners know that the Bibles we read today, with all the numbers in them and the chapters, that's not the way the book was written. Mm-hmm. Uh, there aren't there aren't verse numbers and the way that contemporary uh, publishing houses divide up chapters. And, you know, that's arbitrary. It's not in the original. There's not even punctuation in the original, (laughs) Uh, but the next line after chapter after verse 13, after it says, God cannot deny or disown himself. The next line says, keep reminding God's people of these things. <laughs> and I just think to myself, how odd it is if, if we put that verse 14, the beginning of 14 with 13 and say that they're saying God simply can't do. And 99% of people who are Christians don't know this. <laughs> they obviously haven't been reminded of this. <laughs> and it's right there in the text. Keep reminding God's people of these things. <laughs> Timothy, Paul was telling you, you had to do this. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, I just... No, just I mean, that's that's a really good point. I mean, uh, the, uh, the voice is the... Uh, I read a little bit of the message sometimes as far as contemporary um, use... Bibles, the voice is the one that kind of speaks to me the most. I think it's maybe my background in theater or the fact that I'm kind of like an artsy fartsy person, but this mm-hmm. one kind of frames certain bits of dialogue as though they're like screenplay dialogue. And, 
and uh, and the way that it's written is is artistic without being too um, too difficult to parse from the the more common translations that people read. But that particular section, uh, important to note, the voice says even the voice, which takes a lot of liberties, says he is not able to deny himself. But at fourteen, it says remind others about these things that I'm telling you. Warn them before God to stop their useless bickering over words. After all, splitting hairs does no good. It only <laughs> ruins those forced to listen to their meritless arguments. Uh, <laughs> Paul is saying this. Paul, of all people, who loves to split hairs. Paul loves exactly. rules. How <laughs> yep. is this? If uh, I had been dividing this chapter up, I would have put the first line of 14 with 13, because that next line of 14, more them against quarreling about words, if you read the rest of this chapter, it's all about chatter and teachings, and it's all about words from then on out. But to keep reminding them, I think, fits above. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, uh, oh, there's something else that's going to say here. Oh, I know what it was. Um, I think it's quite telling that the Greek and the English translations include the word cannot. Most people I know, especially in a kind of more uh, free will versions of Christianity, who think that God could do anything God wants to do, but chooses not to, to give us freedom when God could take that freedom away, they might translate this, for God will not deny himself or will not disown himself, giving you the idea that God could, but God's just making a choice, at least most of the time, not to do so. But the stronger cannot, I think, leans toward this notion that God has a nature that even God can't change. And I think that's good news. I think that's a good way to think about a loving God who will always love us, not because God's just kind of crossing his fingers and saying, you know, I really would like to hate you, but I, you know, I made this promise, doggone it, I'm not, I'm going to keep it. No, this is God's very heart, very nature. It's who God is by definition, we might even say. And that's a kind of um, steadfastness that I think gives us a great deal of hope that we can trust this God because this God loves us by God's very nature. I've heard you refer to God's love as kenotic or um, the love of God as kenosis. And this is a phrase that um, I think most people probably aren't going to be familiar with, but it has to do with this constant and everlasting pouring out of oneself, basically giving and giving and loving and loving. Um, do, do I have that about right? Yeah, and I add a word to it that most theologians don't add. I add the word essential. So my view is called essential kenosis. It's God's very essence to be kenotic. Mm. Most theologians think God chooses to be a kenotic most of the time, but, you know, don't always bet on it. I think it's God's very nature to be kenotic. So God, to, to, to say it in a way that my English teacher would not like, God cannot not love. <laughs> <laughs> this is circling back to that was that wasn't a non sequitur circling back to talking about god having a nature is yeah. god's nature is giving god from yes. the beginning of our understanding of god from the beginning of our scripture that we have of the the relation of humans to god god gives god creates god is mm -hmm. providing for us and um and i just think it's like this is how we should frame this uh in the way that if we see god not being able to deny himself it's not that 
it's not that all of a sudden God is um, this flat uh, sort of uh, un- unable to really intervene, unable to really get anything accomplished, that God is just this imp that sits in the corner, like uh, the all-knowing uh, thing that now can't affect us at all. Uh, yeah. Rather that God gives his love and his um, His spirit to us, and that then allows us to move in the world in ways that glorify God. You were yeah. talking, we were talking about God can't um, stop COVID-19. God can't stop HIV. But I do believe in, absolutely in my heart, that it was God that allowed um, the treatments that have allowed people that HIV used to be a death sentence uh, in a very short period of time that now people with a deadly disease as recently as 20, 30 years ago, now live long and fruitful lives because of the the power that God has bestowed upon us, the knowledge that God has bestowed upon us. Yes, science is there. Science wouldn't exist without God. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I just, I wouldn't say God allowed people to find a, a, a cure or I guess it's cure for HIV or is at least uh, treatment, some sort of yeah. treatment. Yeah, I wouldn't say God allowed it. I would say this, God called upon us to use our very best science do the very best we could with the technology we had and people responded to that call of god even people who didn't believe in god probably i don't know who who found the treatments but um (laughs) i think people who are atheists can respond to god not even believing there is a god but respond to this call to do something good to find treatments for hiv and so yes god was the source for the treatments that we've discovered, but God required creaturely contribution, creaturely actors, scientists, physicians, caregivers, etc. That's part of the relational aspect of this thought as well, that God and us and all creation must work together for good to reign. And is it the relational, open and relational belief that God is coercive, but not... Um... Persuasive, but not pers- coercive. Persuasive, but not coercive. Thank yes. you very much. Yeah. yeah. So God is persuading. God is um, impressing upon us certain things, uh, but it is up to us to act right, to to get our lives right, to to be good. Um, yeah. You said something earlier that really resounded with me because I feel like there are going to be a lot of people out there in the world that have certain Christian beliefs or have certain theistic beliefs in one way or another that say, I don't really know that God exists. I can't know that God exists, but I'm going to behave as though it is true Mm -hmm. because I find that that is a net positive in my life. That's a net positive in the world. When I love other people, when I don't judge other people, when I don't, I don't act in violent ways towards people. uh, I think that that's, that's a beautiful way of thinking about it. If you can't be certain, and most of us aren't, uh, at least continue to act in that way. I tell you, the people who are certain are the ones that scare me. <laughs> you should be afraid, yeah. <laughs> you can't be. Uh, how could you be? And if you are, uh, you may have had some sort of spiritual experience that I, I mean, I truly envy, although I'm, I'm skeptical. Yeah, but even, even those experiences require interpretations. Other people have religious experiences and don't attribute it to God. They still say they're religious. But let, let me let me um, let me um, endorse and then expand on what you just said. Um, a lot of people are not certain there's a God. I'm one of them. I'm not certain there's a God. 
I think there's good reason to think there's a God, and I live my life as if there is, but I'm not absolutely certain of this. However, imagine if you had the traditional view of God in mind, which is a God who could single-handedly not only fix things, but could single-handedly give you a crystal clear, unambiguous revelation that God exists. Now, if it's to your advantage to believe that there is a God who's good, because then you might also want to imitate that God and be more loving, wouldn't it be to God's, uh, wouldn't it be wise for a loving God who could give you an absolutely crystal clear, unambiguous message to do so? And yet God doesn't do that, at least the 99.9% of people I know, and I suspect 100%, but some people say otherwise. (laughs) So if you have a view that I have, that there is a God who can't send a crystal clear, unambiguous message, yes, communicates, but never unambiguously in a crystal clear way, then all of a sudden you've got reasons to believe in this God, even though you can't know with 100% certainty. To put it another way, Those people who aren't certain God exists, but who act as if there is one, are actually following the kind of God I believe really exists. Well, isn't that faith? I mean, at its its very core, um, faith isn't uh, creating a sense of certainty in something that you can't possibly be certain of. It is to operate as though um, it's advantageous to uh, listen to Scripture to at least yes. some of scripture. And I've, I've been pretty open about the fact that I, I admire so much of how the Bible constantly fights itself on certain things. And I yeah, love yeah. that. Uh, I love how challenging it is. But um, faith is knowing that we're not, I'm not, where's my burning bush, right? Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I will ever see, uh, regardless of what uh, ecstatic prayer experiences that I've had, what feelings that I've had that I genuinely thought that I felt God in the room as I was praying, you know, I'm, I'm going through this, I'm going yep. through these, um, these rosary, uh, routines over and over and over again. And then finally like an hour in, I'm just like, oh, okay, this is, there's something here, but I still don't yeah. know. You could just be yeah. working yourself into a frenzy. Um, yep. even so you walk away from that thinking God is good. That's God, right. Yeah. God is good and, and God can do good. And, um, and God encourages me to do good. And I think that's the most important thing in our day-to-day lives of how we walk around in this world and how we behave. Yeah, I like that. You know, to kind of simplify the view that I'm proposing with the view that a lot of people have of God, I would simplify it by saying this. I 100% endorse the idea that God is loving at all times, in all places, at every person, every creature, all the time. But I don't think God has the kind of controlling power other people think God has. Now, some people think God has that kind of controlling power, but they're kind of willing to fudge on the God's love stuff because they don't know how God could be loving and permit or cause these evils in the world. I once had a conversation with a former colleague of mine, and I would, we were talking about some of my views on this thing, and I was saying, you know, I believe in the God of love who can't control others. And finally, at one point, he looks at me, and he's kind of half-joking, half-serious. He says, you know, Tom, your God is just doing the best he can. <laughs> and I looked back at him, and I said, yep, yeah, and your God could be doing a whole lot better, but just chooses not to. 
(laughs) (laughs) And I think in a nutshell, that sums up what's at stake. I'm willing to give up the traditional view of God's power to retain a thoroughgoing, consistent, rationally plausible view of a God of love. Whereas a lot of other people don't want to give up on this certain view of God's power and consequently just can't have a consistent view of divine love. The most complicated uh, theological conversation that I've stumbled upon, and, and granted, I'm not, I, I would like to go to seminary someday and, and, and really become a biblical scholar because it fascinates Good. me more than anything else. But the thing that I've stumbled upon that I still struggle with the most is atonement theory. And uh, mm-hmm. the idea that it was, was it necessary for Jesus to die? Was this some sort of, um, was this a sacrifice that had to have happened? Um, it, and, and the way this relates to what we're talking about here is that um, God could have never done what he did in sending Jesus down to walk among the people. Um, God absolutely could have stopped Jesus from being killed. Uh, if you take this traditional view of what God can accomplish. But Jesus was killed. Um, So how is it that then we reconcile this idea of Jesus being, uh, Jesus being one with us, being human, walking on this earth with us, and then still wind up, winding up being killed (laughs) by human beings? It's because God gave of himself, at least this is how I'm, how I'm, how I'm reading it now, is that God yeah. gave of himself, gave us Jesus to, to walk amongst us in a way that was a learning experience for God, just like it was a learning experience for human beings. But ultimately, his death was not necessarily uh, God's intention. I think that's, it was— That's my view as well. Yeah. I, think, um, I think it's a beautiful thing that Jesus— uh, did die for us and that uh, in that way we should similarly sacrifice ourselves and and give love to other people in the same way that Jesus did. But it does exhibit a kind of limitation to how God can act in this world. Yeah, I like that. That's beautifully said. Yeah, I think God learns moment by moment uh, because God knows everything that's knowable, but every moment something new occurs. And so God learns that. In relation to Jesus, I don't think it was necessary for Jesus to die, at least not in the sense that God preordained it from uh, all eternity. Um, it may have been necessary that Jesus was going to die simply because he was a person who loved perfectly. And in a world of people who don't love perfectly, it was just going to be inevitable that people who wanted power and wanted authority we're going to get rid of this person who's loved perfectly and that's it's a different kind of necessity we might say than (laughs) what most people think Um, but the atonement stuff is really tough and part of the toughness of atonement theories is that virtually all of them are framed from a perspective of a god outside of time virtually all of them have god doing all the work in atonement and we're basic pawns in this thing. Our participation doesn't really matter. An open and relational view of atonement says what we do does matter. Yes, God acts, empowers, makes possible salvation, but our choices in response to God really make a difference. Jesus provides us not only an example of what it means to respond perfectly to God, but Jesus' life, teachings, death, and resurrection 
creates new possibilities for us today because of what he did. Given the ongoing nature of time and God's interactive action in time, God takes what's ever good, and Jesus was perfectly good, and uses that to benefit those in the future. And we benefit because of Jesus and God's ongoing work with us. It's a complex subject. I've actually got a couple of doctoral students who are working on open and relational theories of atonement. Uh, I think we need some some good ones to replace some of the bad ones. <laughs> it is. It's a really challenging topic, and it is yes. one that um, the 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 main thing, having been raised the way that I was raised in the Catholic Church, but not being really super engaged with Scripture. Uh, and then falling away from faith and coming back to it later in life after having been through um, after having been through college and, and becoming sort of the sort of person that likes to study things and get involved in things. The more I read the Bible, the more I have to come up with an explanation for why God is so different at the beginning of the Bible from from who God is at the end. And a relational understanding of God allows for God to learn from the experience of creating this world. It is, in a way, kind of almost self-affirming as a human being mm. to know that I can affect God. Yes. <laughs> My, me, just little it's Totally self-affirming. <laughs> oh, I think, it's, I think that's one of the biggest pluses of open and relational thought. Um, I, I oftentimes, you know, I, before the pandemic, I did a lot of speaking in universities, conferences, churches, etc., and when I got to the part of my presentation where I said, God actually needs you to respond to God's call, I would watch my audience. And a good portion of my audience, I could just kind of see their shoulders going back and like, yeah, here's the theology that says that my life matters. And I've always kind of thought my choices matter. But most theologies have said, not really, because God's in control. Mm. Now here's a theology that says, yeah, my, my choices matter. Now, there's always also a percentage of the congregation who you can almost see their shoulders slump. And it's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. My life actually <laughs> matters. <laughs> and I like to say to those people, you know, yes, your life does matter. You don't carry the whole world on your shoulders. God is calling you to do specific things at specific times, and those really matter. But you're not carrying the weight of the world. So just respond to what God's calling to you to do, and don't worry about carrying the universe. I think it's a natural urge for people to coming back to this idea of God as like this um, this father that kind of holds us to his chest and and protects us and will do anything to make sure that our lives wind up as perfectly as possible. That's a natural urge because we mm -hmm. live in a complicated world. Suffering is real; it happens all the time. You go back through any of the. Um, foundational Christian texts outside of the Bible. And you constantly see these idea of I'm surrendering myself to God. God will figure out what I need to do, which is a problematic idea because, well, maybe God doesn't. Maybe God yeah. doesn't figure out what you need to do. Maybe you, you can listen. You can tune in. Pray more. I always tell people, pray more. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the most useful thing. Like um, studying scripture is great. Um, engaging with um, with theological ideas and, and philosophy is great. But if you really want to feel closer to God, oftentimes it is just shut, allowing yourself to shut your mind up for a second and, and listen 
and try to have an honest conversation if you can. I mean, sometimes it doesn't wind up being a conversation. Sometimes you just wind up saying, I need this and I need this and I need this. And I'm sure that's very exhausting for God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I was, I pulled up, I pulled out the imitation of Christ uh, today and I, I found a prayer, uh, a prayer that the will of God always be fulfilled. And I read through it and I thought, this is impossible. You want, <laughs> you want every single thing to be solved for you. And it's, yeah. you're setting yourself up to be disappointed. I don't want to, I don't want to set a, a, a belief structure up for myself that allows me to be constantly disappointed by something that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I think one of the advantages of open and relational thought is that it actually makes sense of petitionary prayer. Um, and this is what I mean by that. Um, maybe the, the way to explain this perhaps is for me to share with you four models of God and how they think of prayer. So as quickly as I can here, <laughs> the first model says God predestined everything from the foundations of the world. If that's true, petitionary prayer right now doesn't matter one whit because God has already decided everything that's going to happen in the future and you praying for your aunt to get over cancer, that outcome's already been determined. Your prayers don't matter. Most people don't have that view of prayer. Even people who have a, that view of God don't pray that way. Most people have a second view. And it says God could single-handedly fix Aunt Mary's cancer, whoever I said that was. We'll go with Aunt Mary. Aunt <laughs> Mary's cancer. But God doesn't always do that and sometimes waits around to fix things until we ask. That presents a picture of a God who's got his arms folded, sitting on the sidelines saying, you know, Ariel, if you got to pray 79 times before I jump in and do something, which of course is not a picture of a loving God. Can you imagine if parents said, you know, I'm not going to give you food unless you ask me 79 times to the two-year-old? You know, that's not going to work. But that's the way a lot of people think God acts. God could just fix it, but we got to beg, we got to plead, we got to, you know, put it on the prayer chain to make sure everybody is pleading to God. And that, that paints a picture of God that makes no sense to me. So what a lot of people do is take a third model. They'll say this, well, our prayers don't change God, they just change us. Now, I think prayer can change us, but I think most prayer, at least petitionary prayer, was intended to have some effect or influence on God, such that the future might be different because we prayed. So this fourth model, an open and relational model, says this. Our prayers really influence God. We live in an interrelational universe, and our prayers influence us and others in the universe. And because God and the world, moment by moment, goes through time, our prayers in one moment can present new avenues, new opportunities, new possibilities for God in the next moment. So they affect God and the world and ourselves, such that the future can be different because we prayed. It doesn't mean that our prayers enable God to control others, because I don't believe in a controlling God, so that's off the table. But it does mean that God has new data new relational opportunities because we have acted in particular ways. And so prayer can actually make sense in an open and relational perspective in ways that I don't think it makes much sense in other views. 
Well, that's really great. I mean, it's it's something that um, I'm sure a lot of people struggle with when you sit down and I'm, I'm in a I'm in a fairly healthy routine now. Where this is this is the time where I pray and this is how I get into the right headspace. And but for a lot of people, you sit down and you start to pray and you kind of feel stupid or you kind of feel like you don't really know what you're supposed to say or um, something like that. And so uh, the you know the to hear that God might actually not only be listening to us, but um, might be affected by it and not just having to sit back and go, yes, I'll answer that one. No, I won't answer this one. That I'm sure is reassuring to a lot of people. People should be reassured in prayer that, um, that, you know, you, you can and do affect God, that it's, that it's, it's very, very um, important to know that your prayers may not always immediately be answered. Sure. I, I prayed to win, the mega millions a few <laughs> a few weeks ago, uh, and uh, obviously I'm joking, but this sort of thing is something that that um, we always want to pray for the things that we want, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen. In that though, open and relational theology allows us to to say that it's very very possible that that will affect God in some way, and someday perhaps the um, the occasion may present itself that the forces of our wills on earth will change the course of our lives. And, and it, it's complicated because it does sometimes say, well, if God can't act in this way, how is God going to solve our problems? Well, it's not that God can't act at all. It's that God can't do certain things. Right, exactly. And in a relational universe, it's not just God as an actor. It's not just us as an actor. There are other people who are also acting, so they have influence. There are forces and factors at the subatomic level, at what we call the laws of nature. There's all kinds of uh, what we call in philosophy causes at work in the world. And uh, not just God, not just us and God. So um, when we pray, our, our actions do have an influence on God, but as you say, they don't guarantee some kind of result as if it's a putting a coin in a slot machine or something wouldn't that be easy <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh well this has been amazing thank you so much for for coming oh. on the show and and uh and and talking with me and i hope that this opened a lot of people's eyes to uh different options for um theological perspectives of god and and how we can see the world as we live it today and and not need to think of God in a way that is, well, frankly, impossible. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so is there anything that you'd like to plug? Obviously, your book is coming out next month. It's called Open and Relational Theology. Is there a subtitle? I can't remember. Uh, the subtitle is An Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas. Um, I mentioned also this book called God Can't. Many, many people have been helped by that. Uh, it's about suffering and uh, God's relationship to it. So I would recommend that. And maybe finally, um, I direct the Center for Open and Relational Theology. We have a website that's uh, the letter C, the number four, and then ORT.com. It's got tons of resources from all kinds of perspectives, from more progressive to more moderate to you know different denominations, folks outside of Christianity. Um, and so there's lots of resources there. I encourage people to check that out. Well, that's really cool. Um, thank you again. I usually close uh, all of my episodes with uh, a poem. 
And I thought that I would just completely flip everything that we talked about on its head and read something from John Donne. Okay. Um, (laughs) This is, uh, this is his, uh, Holy Sonnet 14, the subtitle, it's largely kind of known as Batter My Heart, Three-Personed God. Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy and me, me should defend, but is captive and proved weak or untrue. Yet dearly, I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except that you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Thanks, everybody. Remind me, O oh God, of what you've done for me, the gift of all creation, the life of victory. Remind me, O oh God, that you are listening with patience everlasting. You're walking next to me. my burdens at your feet. You are my